Welcome to series three of the A-Level Politics Show. I'm so happy to be back after a month off. We have new episodes, new topics. We have lots of rain outside, so apologies if you hear the pitter-patter of raindrops on my loft windows. I hope that doesn't spoil uh, your enjoyment of this show. Today, we are going to focus on political parties and we are evaluating the view that they serve democracy. Do they serve democracy? Well, for them to do that, they would need to fulfill their functions. Their functions are to provide representation, to be able to hold the government to account, to provide voters with a meaningful choice of programmes and to provide avenues for participation. This podcast will argue, it will take the direction that political parties do none of those things particularly well and therefore don't serve democracy very well. You may take a different view. The most important thing in your essay is at the start you outline what you think and why you think it. So after the break, and you will hear of course at the moment these lovely new jingles, these new sounds, this new new sounding podcast. After the break, uh, we will really focus on this first function of representation. Now, political parties arguably represent the public. They provide candidates for election for the UK Parliament as well as for the Scottish Parliament and Welsh Assembly um, and for local council and other elections too. They also provide the personnel for government um, and it is the long-established convention that the Prime Minister will be the leader of the largest party in the House of Commons. The vast majority of Britain's MPs are elected as a member of one of the major political parties. However, parties are very unrepresentative in so many ways. Under the first pass, the the post system, the Conservatives won the support of 37% of the electorate in 2015, but won 51% of the seats. They enjoyed what's called a winner's bonus. And so some parties benefit from that electoral system, particularly the big ones and the smaller ones whose vote is more uh, thinly spread throughout the country, tend to pick up fewer seats in general elections and therefore are underrepresented, underrepresented in Parliament. And that means that the people are underrepresented in Parliament. Their wishes aren't truly reflected by that electoral system. Let's move on to another argument to suggest that parties are not representative. Boris Johnson was elected the leader of the Conservative Party and effectively Prime Minister since the Tories were in government by Conservative Party members. Yet those who took part in that election amounted to less than 1% of the electorate. Barely 120,000 people uh, had a ballot paper to use in that particular election. Small party memberships have also resulted in parties reaching out to big business for large one-off donations. And that can affect conflicts of interest. Housing Minister Robert Jenrick earlier in 2020 was accused of rushing through approval for a development project to satisfy Tory donor Richard Desmond, a move that saved Desmond's company from paying millions in extra tax. Was that decision taken in the public interest, representing what people wanted, or to satisfy the demands of billionaire donors? Such examples show that parties might be willing to put the interests of their party above those of whom they're supposed to represent. Related to this point is the fact that politicians and their parties seem in it for themselves 
rather than in it to represent. There are growing levels of cynicism about untrustworthy politicians. As Jeremy Paxman put it, you would not want your daughter to marry one of them. The cash for peerages affair involved rich donors giving secret loans of £12 million to the Labour Party during the Blair government. Questions will remain, still remain, about whether influence can be bought. David Cameron left office in 2016, but not before rewarding many of his loyal supporters with peerages in the House of Lords. Was he doing it to represent the public? Was he doing it to reward people who helped him out? The revelation around MPs' expenses around a decade ago damaged the reputation of all the major parties. A Liberal Democrat MP claimed for a trouser press. Some Conservatives claimed for their swimming pools to be heated. While former Prime Minister Gordon Brown claimed for a gardener used by his brother. Politicians have voted consistently for above inflation pay increases for themselves while calling for public sector pay restraint. The Jennifer R. Curie scandal posed questions of Prime Minister Boris Johnson during his time as London Mayor and whether he gave favourable treatment to a close personal friend when it came to awarding of public money. And I put friends in inverted commas. On with the show. Now, parties are supposed to hold the government to account, which is an important component of democracy. Opposition parties and opposition leaders subject the government to scrutiny through votes and debates. Keir Starmer has week after week questioned the government's handling of COVID-19. Most recently, in September 2020, questioning why the education secretary took the decision he did to use an algorithm to calculate students' A-level results. The opposition has also quizzed the government over child benefit cuts in the past and on tuition fees. MPs within the governing party hold the government to account as well. It's not just the opposition. Uh, so Heidi Allen, a former Conservative MP, used her maiden speech to attack her own government over tax credit cuts. However, the fusion of powers and the electoral system hinders meaningful oversight performed by political parties. And when I mean fusion of powers, I mean that the executive, the government, sits inside parliament and dominates it. Whereas in the US and in other countries, you have a separation of powers where uh, the executive, the government, uh, is not able to control parliament in quite the same way. So this fusion of powers means that parties in government effectively uh, call the shots. Why did the Labour government lose only one vote on tuition fees between 1997 and 2007, for example? Did the Conservative Lib Dem coalition lose a single vote in the House of Commons? Answer, only two as of November 2013. The fusion of powers allows the executive to simply dominate the legislature and therefore control the parliamentary agenda. After winning an 80-seat majority in the 2019 general election, the Conservatives were able to steer through the EU Withdrawal Act 2020 with minimal scrutiny in just over a month. Let's turn to another function before the break. Parties are supposed to offer the electorate a clear choice between competing programmes. Now, Labour and the coalition clashed over cuts to child benefits and there appears to be a clear choice when we look at Jeremy Corbyn in the 2019 general election um, and Boris Johnson 
in the 2019 general election. We had one party, the Labour Party, calling for the nationalisation of the railways. We had what another party um, dismissing that out of hand. However, there is still the perception that parties are all the same. Jeremy Corbyn has since given away to Keir Starmer, perhaps a more moderate centrist figure who has now accepted Brexit. Um, and of course, the Conservative Party has steered through Brexit. Um, the two party system perpetuated by first past the post drowns out the voices of smaller parties with perhaps more radical and progressive ideas. Both the Labour and Conservative manifestos in 2019 said very little about reform to politi political institutions. Uh, neither of them supported, for example, changing the electoral system. After the break, we're going to look at whether parties are truly a vehicle for participation. So important when considering whether parties actually serve democracy or hinder it. So parties get people involved in politics and that's good for democracy. It might include canvassing, attending meetings, driving voters to polling stations to vote and the chance to participate in citizens' juries and focus groups. The Labour Party saw a massive increase in its membership after the election of Jeremy Corbyn as its leader in 2015. Suddenly, once again, we had a mass movement party in this country. Local branches of Labour parties, they're called CLPs, including Streatham, voted to take decisions along the lines of one member, one vote when selecting party candidates for elections. And that gave ordinary members the say on who their party candidate will be at general elections. This initiative gave the membership huge influence upon the future direction of the party. However, membership of political parties remains low, despite the so-called Corbyn surge. We are talking about half a million people in one party, less than a million people uh, in, any, in, in all parties combined. Uh, that therefore, is a very small percentage of the electorate. And the disputes between the momentum-backed left wing of the Labour Party and the more centrist members, the more moderate members, alienated many long-standing members of the Labour Party, dampening their participation. So while Jeremy Corbyn may have got in lots of young, enthusiastic people to that party, um, that also meant that those who were already in the party maybe stood back and didn't participate as much because they didn't like the direction uh, that the party was going in. And in, a, in, a, in the same way, uh, many pro-European moderate conservatives stepped back from a kind of conservative party that Boris Johnson was leading, a very Brexit orientated party. Um, and the election of Boris Johnson as Conservative Party leader allowed him to assume the role of prime minister since it is convention that the leader of the largest party in the house of commons is elevated to this position and as i mentioned earlier only tory members uh, could vote in that election so that's only around 140,000 people 120,000 people something like that had a say on who the country's next prime minister uh, would be is that really promoting participation or not Therefore, it is clear to my mind, at least, that political parties don't do enough to serve democracy in the UK. They are largely unrepresentative of the wider population uh, that they 
seek to influence. Um, politicians often seem to take decisions that benefit themselves or their own party and not the wider public. Um, they don't necessarily do a good job of holding the government to account, partly because of the electoral system that hinders um, smaller parties and benefits larger parties, particularly the governing party. Um, and also the fusion of powers allows the governing party to dominate parliament in a way that means meaningful oversight is very, very difficult indeed. Do they provide proper opportunities for participation? The evidence of the last few years is that they do not. And that is why so many young people, particularly young people, are joining pressure groups rather than political parties. It is why that those who favoured um, membership of the EU felt let down really by the two main parties, partly because one was arguing to leave the EU and the other one wasn't really arguing um, for anything particularly. And so you see a lot of people feeling shut out by those political parties. They are responsible for people feeling their political system does not work properly. I've argued quite forcefully, therefore, that parties do not serve democracy. But notice that I still acknowledged the other arguments, the arguments in favour of political parties. And I started off in each section arguing why parties do things well before criticising them. And that's how your essay should look. That's how your paragraph should look. That starts off with the other side, the argument that you don't agree with, and you finish each paragraph coming back to the arguments that you do agree with. And you can take a completely different view than I do, but the structure must be like that uh, in order for you uh, to achieve really high grades in A-level politics. It is not just about what you know, it is also about what you think and why you think it and proving why you think it, acknowledging that there is another side, but disproving that side. I really hope you've enjoyed this first episode of series three. We're going to do as many as we possibly can over the coming months. Please let me know what you think. You can tweet me at Nick D'Souza. Um, you can also leave a very, very nice review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast because that will help more people find out about the show. And please feel free as well uh, on Twitter to let me know uh, the topics that you'd like me uh, to discuss. Okay, until next time, we'll see ya.